Our text today is from Matthew chapter 14, beginning of verse 22, and we'll go through verse 36 here in just a moment. So if you want to make your way to that passage of scripture, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there. We'll read the narrative and uh, get perspective on what I'm going to speak on here in just a second. But the message today is entitled, Do Not Be Afraid. It's easier to say than it is sometimes to live, but I want to speak to you on how to live a life of faith rather than a life of fear. Fear is defined as an unpleasant emotion that is caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous around us or likely to bring some type of pain or threat uh, to our lives. And many people have been gripped by fear in the world over the past three years with the global health situation. Uh, Further, in our nation and others around the world, there's political and economic chaos uh, that brings fear to people's lives. Um, Economic fears are driven by the fact that inflation is now the highest that it's been in more than 40 years, and our stock market had the worst first half of the year in 50 years. So there are a lot of things that are just always swirling around us that are making us think about this uncertain world that we live in. And if we're not careful, these things can bring fear to our lives about what the future is going to bring and what life is going to be like and what we're going to experience. And sometimes those fears are immediate because they apply to our individual lives. And then sometimes they're more broad fears that we have about what's going on in the world. Uh, Chapman University uh, surveyed people's top fears, and what they found included that people have fears of death and serious illness, uh, civil unrest, uh, economic collapse that I already mentioned, uh, government restrictions, random shootings, crime in general, and a whole host of other things. So we're not having any shortage of fears, it seems, uh, in our lives. Uh, A lady by the name of Maria Stenvikel A corporate consultant asked some people around the world from different places what types of things they fear. She said, what's your greatest fear in life? And a little survey that she did. And they listed the typical fears. But interestingly, one out of five also expressed a different kind of fear. Living a life without purpose or meaning. Listen to what some of them said. Anthony from New York City said, my biggest fear is never taking a risk in an effort to find my true calling. Rebecca from Germany said, my greatest fear is to go through life living small but not realizing it until it's too late. Danielle from California said, my greatest fear would be missing out on my purpose here on this earth. I know I have a purpose, but I also know that I'm not yet serving it. And then Ralph from North Brunswick said, my greatest fear is regretting all that I didn't do as I lay in my hospital bed as an elderly man. We live in a sin-fallen world, and there are any number of things that can cause us to be afraid, yet there are 365 admonitions in the Bible telling us not to be afraid. So apparently God understands what we're facing, and he tells us to fear not. And the Lord Jesus lived a life without fear. He was very aware of the obstacles and the opponents that he faced, and he knew the dangers that they brought, but he lived without fear, and he spoke the words to us, fear not, as an imperative. That means as a command to us 
as his followers. And these words apply to our lives today as much as ever. Maybe we need them more than ever. Uh, and we need to understand that we don't have to be afraid. And if we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then we can live a life that is not captured by fear. After the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd had messianic expectations of promoting, of promoting Jesus. They wanted to lift him to the place that he rightfully deserved, but in a way that served their own purposes. And we pick up reading right after the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 22. And here's what the scripture says. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, verse 28, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe, the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were healed. Lord Jesus, as we think in these moments about the narrative of the miracle that you performed in Matthew chapter 14, the miracles that we see coming from your power, I pray that we would be drawn to the peace that you have for our lives and that we would be a people who live in faith and not in fear. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So how can we live in faith and overcome fear? First of all, we overcome fear by trusting in what Jesus is doing through the storm. In verse 22, it tells us that he made the disciples get into the boat. The meaning of this is that he compelled them. This was not a passing suggestion. He told them that they were to get into the boat any minute. He compelled them to do so. So at the very outset of this narrative, we find that every storm we face in life is either by the will of God in sending us there or according to the will of God 
in permitting us to be there. Nothing that happens in your life or mine is by accident. It's not by happenstance. It is according to either what God is directly leading to take place in your life or permitting to take place in your life and then being with you through it in the midst of this sin-fallen world. Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said, why does God bring thunderclouds and disasters when we want green pastures and still waters? Bit by bit, we find that behind the clouds are the Father's feet. Behind the lightning, an abiding day that has no night. Behind the thunder, a still small voice that comforts with a comfort that is unspeakable. So here is Jesus. that he's sending the disciples into the storm. And where is he? He's gone up on the mountain to pray by himself. And he prays there well into the night. Now this is a little bit of an aside, but it is also a significant point. In the midst of all of the busyness of Jesus ministering and serving and loving and, and caring for the needs of the people, he knew that he had to have time alone with the Father. We looked at that recently as we thought about the prayer life of Jesus and what we can learn from that. And here he was in this particular moment. He's up alone on the mountain and he's praying. Verse 24 says, Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Now note what's happening here. The disciples are about to go from the pinnacle experience of the feeding of the 5,000, where they've seen the food multiplied, they've seen the power of Jesus, and now they're going to go to their lowest point because they're going to be in the midst of a significant storm. In the Sea of Galilee, as we've uh, noticed in some other stories recently, is well known for its sudden storms. And during this particular storm, Jesus was not in the boat with his disciples. The Sea of Galilee, some 686 feet below sea level, uh, is mostly warm and tranquil, but geographically the sea is flanked by what you might refer to as a succession of valleys and gullies. And cold air gets trapped and those valleys become funnels of sorts and the cold air gets pushed into that warm air and much like we have the disruption of storms when the cold air and the warm air meets, that happens also but even more violently on that particular body of water. And I think about the suddenness of how this storm came up, and I think it's symbolic of the life storms that we experience. Is it not the case that storms come up in our lives very suddenly, oftentimes? Things are going along fine. We don't have any particular problem. We're not dealing with any particular challenge. And then in the next moment, we're in chaos. Everything's out of order. Something terrible may have happened in our lives or in our families. And all of a sudden, we don't know what to do. And here were the disciples at least three to four miles away from Jesus. And Mark 6 and verse 48 says that Jesus saw them as they rode against the winds. They were not alone. Jesus was watching over them. The watchful eye of the Lord was upon them. And not only was the watchful eye of the Lord upon them, but he was praying for them up on the mountain, which they wouldn't know until later on. 
And no matter what you're going through and no matter what fear you're currently facing, God knows right where you are. And God is with you. And God cares about the situation that you're in. And I say to you today that when you're tempted to fear, remember that God has promised to be with you. Did not Jesus promise that he would never leave us or forsake us? Didn't Jesus say that he would be with us to the end of the age? Do we trust what he said? Can we believe his promise to us that he's going to be with us all the way through? I think about in the Old Testament book of Joshua, God made a specific promise to Joshua as the leader of the Israelites. Joshua had been called to lead the people into the promised land uh, after the death of, of Moses. And there were formidable enemies in the land. It would have been easy to be afraid from a human perspective. And the book of Joshua describes seven years of conquest and then seven years of the settlement of the land. But here's what Joshua 1 and verse 9 says. Be strong and courageous. Again, what is that? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So you see the key connection? He doesn't say, uh, be strong and courageous because you can do it. Be strong and courageous because you've got the power to do it. That's not what he says. He says, be strong and courageous because the Lord your God is with you. And here's the principle. If your faith is in God, you've been called to live by faith and not by fear. Even if people have the ability to kill us, God is able and we are to trust in him. And when you're tempted to fear, remember that Jesus is praying for you. Even now, the Bible says that he lives to make intercession for us. And we overcome fear by trusting in what Jesus is doing through the storm. But then second, we overcome fear by trusting in who Jesus is in the storm. Now, this is a very important point because Jesus let them struggle against the storm for many hours. John's account of this particular narrative tells us that they had rowed 25 or 30 stadia. Uh, that's the equivalent of somewhere around three and a half miles. The other gospels indicate that it was the fourth watch of the night between three o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the morning that Jesus would have come to them. You got to think about these disciples. They're just people. And though they're strong people and, and fishermen and, and other backgrounds where they would have experienced this type of setting before, they had to be tired. And they had to be wondering if they needed to turn around somehow, or maybe if the wind could blow them back to the shore from where they started because they weren't making good progress as it was. And Sometimes when we face a trial or a difficulty in our lives, we want the easy escape. At least I do. I, I want the least pain. I, I, I want the least problem. And we're not promised an easy escape. We, we, we've not been promised a life without struggle. And I think that's one of the things that gets people off track about the Christian faith to begin with is sometimes it's presented in such a way as though life's just always going to be smooth sailing. And listen, if you've been following Christ any time at all, you know that's not true. You know that there's struggle in this world. In fact, the struggle may be long and tiring. You, you might be dealing with something in your life that is a struggle. It, it could be for the rest of your life. We, we don't know. 
But yet we know in the midst of that, God will give us what we need. And here's what James 1 and verse 2 and following says. He says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God will give you in the struggle the strength to endure. And when you endure, then you will grow in your likeness of Christ toward maturity. This is the point. This is what we want to happen spiritually. And had the disciples not been in that situation, they would not have seen the glory and the power of Jesus in what he did. And if I had time today, I could give some of you the opportunity to bear witness, to give a testimony of some things that have happened in your lives as well. And you would say, if you were given the opportunity, that you would not have seen the power of God had you not been in the struggle. And it was the struggle that drew you closer to God rather than pushing you away. But notice what happens. If our faith is in Jesus and we're depending on him, then in the struggle, we're going to move toward him. As we're going to see in just a moment, we're not going to push away. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them and he's walking on the lake. We read that. Yeah, he's walking on the lake. No, this is a miracle. It's a miracle right here. And the disciples could not believe what they were seeing. And they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And his ability to walk on the water in itself was authentication of his identity as the Messiah. You know why he could walk on the water? Because he created it. And he controls it. That's why he could walk on it. And this is not figurative language. I believe that this is a literal event that took place. And it says in verse 27, Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, Jesus literally answered, I am. It's rendered here, I think also correctly, as it is I. But the original language is I am. Am. You say, why does that matter? Well, in the book of Exodus, you remember that God called Moses from the backside of the desert and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses went over to look at the bush that was burning but not being consumed. And Moses said, Here I am, when God called him. And God told him not to come any closer to remove his sandals because the place that he was standing was holy ground. And God identified himself to Moses. Moses had some reservations. God called him to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt and to be the leader of God's people. And Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors sent me to you and they asked me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Exodus 3 and verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, what is that I am designation? It's the designation that God is the self-existent God. There was never a time when he did not exist. There will never be a time when God will not exist. 
And in John chapter 8, Jesus makes the comparison to himself when the Pharisees claimed that Jesus had a demon. And Jesus told them that their father Abraham rejoiced to see the day and was glad. And they said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. What was he doing? He was declaring himself to be the eternal God. Jesus equated himself with the title that God gave himself in Exodus 3 in verse 14. So when Jesus uses the phrase, I am, he's saying something. He's saying in the midst of the storm, I am. It's the same as when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. When Jesus says, I am, it means something. It it carries an eternal weight. There's a connection also in the Old Testament in Isaiah in a few places where the I am is coupled with the phrase, fear not. Isaiah 43 and verse 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. For I am, verse 3, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 says, fear not, for I am with you. And Peter said to Jesus in verse 28 in our narrative, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. You know what Jesus, Jesus was doing in declaring the I am? He's saying, I'm God. I've got the power. And what is Peter doing? He's listening to the voice of God. Now, it is important to note here as well, when he says, if it is you, it's literally designated since it is you. It's like, Lord, it's you. You're here. And Peter steps out. But what happened? You know how the story goes. Peter saw the wind and he was afraid. He took his eyes off of Jesus. F.F. Bruce said that Peter walked on the water, but he feared the wind. Such is human nature, often achieving great things and at fault in little things. And Peter begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. Oh, Peter knew who to cry out to in the crisis. He knew who to listen to when he stepped out. And yes, he took his eyes off of him. And yes, we criticize him sometimes for what he did. But he did get out of the boat. It's very important that he had the faith to listen to the voice of Jesus. And then when the crisis came, he said, Lord, save me. And sometimes we get our eyes off of Jesus in the midst of the storm as well. I've done it, you've done it, we'll probably do it again. And we're looking at our problem and we're looking at our struggle and we're looking at all the chaos that it's brought. And we take our eyes off the Lord and then we're reminded, maybe through the reading of the scripture, maybe through our own prayer, maybe through the testimony of somebody else, that God has not forgotten us. And we say, Lord, help us. You're all we got. And more importantly, you're all we need. Now, why did Peter doubt? Well, he was not singularly focused. The very idea of the word doubt is to to be divided into two, to have divided allegiance. 
And sometimes we see our problems, and when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we begin to sink as well. And if you follow Jesus and you do what he says to do, it doesn't mean you're not going to have some trouble. Remember, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. That's what we started the whole story with. But even so, Jesus knows when you're in trouble, and he has the ability to help you when you're in trouble if you'll listen to his voice and you'll follow him. Jesus reaches out his hand. He catches him. He says in verse 31, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter got scolded a little bit here, not for leaving the boat, but for not abiding in faith, for losing his focus. And faith that is emphasized here is walking toward Jesus in the storm and trusting in his divine power to help us every step of the way. So you know what faith is? It is confidence in Christ alone. And you know that confidence builds courage. And when we are at our weakest points, it's because our faith has diminished. And we've lost sight of the one who can help us. So maybe you're in one of those low spots right now. You might feel like you're sinking. Don't know what to do. I can tell you what to do. Take it to the Lord. Trust in him. You may not see the immediate way out. You might not have a quick answer or any answer at all in the moment. But if you look to God, he'll help you. And then third and finally, we overcome fear by trusting in what Jesus is able to do to calm the storm. Look at verse 32. It says, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, when we read this, you might have thought that there, were, there was only one miracle. There's actually three. The first miracle was Jesus walking on the water. The second miracle was Peter walking on the water. The third miracle is Jesus calming the storm. So there's a lot going on in this story. And when they got into the boat, the storm abated. In the midst of their fears, God, who is the master of the storms and the controller of the waves, came to them in the darkness, stepped into their boat, and he calmed it all. Jesus did what the disciples were incapable of doing. And Jesus is able to do in our lives what we are incapable of doing in calming the storm. But part of our problem is sometimes we try to manage our own storms rather than looking to God who has the power over the storms. You know how it goes. The problem comes and what do you start doing sometimes rather than looking to God in faith? You start trying to find a solution. We're fixers. We, we want it to be over and done with. We want to be out of the situation. And we start trying to manage the situation rather than looking to God who has the power over the storms. And, and I would encourage you when the chaos comes, when the storm blows up, don't look for a fix first, but look to God who will give you the wisdom for what needs to take place in the midst of the chaos. Because he's the one that is the manager of the storms. He's over it all. There's a funny little story about a woman who was seated next to a pastor on an airplane during a storm. 
the woman was afraid and she looks at him she says can't you do anything about this storm and the pastor said ma'am I'm in sales not in management we sometimes forget that we're not the ones managing it all but we're not you know what God will do sometimes in those storms he will bring us to our knees so we understand he's the one that we're to be trusting in he will sometimes bring us to a point where we realize he's all we've got and he's all we need he's the only one who has the power to deal with the problem now most of us are never going to walk on water like Peter did but all of us are going to go through faith testing circumstances Jesus did not abandon the disciples to drown because their faith was weak he exemplified who he is and what he's able to do in the storm and we can overcome fear by trusting in what he's able to do to calm the storm now I want us to look again at the last part of this passage in uh, Matthew chapter 14 and the declaration that Jesus truly is the Son of God in verse 33 and then what takes place right after that God strengthens us in each situation that we have so that he gets the glory the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work in your life and God cares about your little problems and he cares about your big problems as well so don't think well I've got a small problem other people's problems are worse than mine certainly God doesn't care about my problem no he cares about all of them because you're his child if you're trusting him by faith and what they did in response to what Jesus did is that they worship the one who calmed the storm and you might be dealing with physical illness right now you might be dealing with the loss of a loved one that's bringing pain to your life you might be experiencing a relationship issue or some type of job pressure and troubles or parenting problems or you fill in the blank I'm here to tell you today Jesus cares he cares he's praying for you you are not alone and he will ultimately deliver you from the storm that you're in in the moment. And the Bible says here that the disciples crossed on over and they came to the land of Gennesaret, a region on the western shore of Capernaum. And when the men of that place recognized him, what did they do? They sent out all uh, into all the surrounding region and they brought to Jesus those who were sick. And they begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. They knew what he was able to do. They knew that there was power in this man called Jesus. And what did they want to do? Get as close to him as they possibly could. The things that you experience in life are going to have one or two effects on you. You're either going to lean in and grow closer to the Lord and your dependence on Him daily, or you're going to push back and you're going to try to carry the load on your own. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, you're going to fail if you do that, but some people are going to try that anyway. That's not how to live a life in conformity to the image of Jesus. Lean in and lean in early and lean in with all you've got because Jesus can help you.
there's an old gospel song uh, that some of you be familiar with. Jesus is the master of the sea. I love some of the words of that song. When he reaches out his hand, billows cease at his command. Winds and waves obey his will. When he says to them, be still. What man is this? They all did say that the winds and sea obey. He's the one who sails with me. He's still the master of the sea. The one who is the master of the sea in Matthew chapter 14 is still the master of the sea. And he'll meet you at your point of need. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I know enough to know that in a group this size today, there are a lot of things going on in your lives. Some of you are carrying some pretty heavy burdens of some situations that you're dealing with. You don't know what the outcome is going to be and you know you need help. Would you lean in in faith and just say to the Lord, Lord, help me in this situation. My trust is in you. Maybe you've never taken that first step of faith and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And your cry to him needs to be, save me, Lord. I need you. I need forgiveness. I need everlasting life. Whatever your need is, faith is the right response. Let me tell you, church, you can never go wrong with a faith response to God. Here I am, Lord. I trust in you. That's always the right response. Father, we thank you today for the story from Matthew chapter 14, the account of what Jesus did there on the water. We're amazed, God, that by the power of your hand, storms can be stilled, that you have the supernatural power to overcome things that we can only imagine. As we lift up our needs to you today, I pray that the burden would be lifted um, and in the midst of whatever it is that we're struggling with, that we would have courage and confidence because of our faith. And I pray that every person in this place today would, would be uh, just greatly encouraged because they've been reminded today that, Lord, you care and you have the power to help us in the midst of whatever it is that we're dealing with. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And we're thankful for that. So we give this time of response over to you, and we pray if there are uh, spiritual decisions that need to be made or commitments that need to be made, Lord, that people would respond appropriately. And, uh, Lord, you get the glory for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.